Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast. Today, I'm delighted to bring to you Steve Anderson, who is a Wall Street Journal US Today writer and international author of a global bestseller, The Bezos Letters, which was cited by CEO Magazine as one of their top reads for 2020. Steve's a technology and risk expert, and he was recognized as one of the original LinkedIn influencers too, with 340,000 followers. Wow, Steve, that is a lot of followers. Jane, thank you for having me. Yeah, the the LinkedIn stuff has always been kind of interesting. It it was a fluke. As I always tell people, it was, I think, being at the right place at the right time. Well, Steve, as I said, it's great to have you here. And you're, of course, in the US and you're in Tennessee, aren't you? I am just outside Nashville, Tennessee, Music City. Yes. And have you have you lived there all your life? Uh, we've lived here about 20 years now, and before that, about 10 years in Texas, and then both my wife and I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, so moved a little okay. bit. Okay, wonderful. So before we get into talking about the Bezos letters, Steve, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your career and about your background and how you actually came to write a book like this. Sure. My career has been in the insurance business, in the insurance industry here in the U.S. I started working in two different insurance agencies, actually selling insurance to mostly businesses in the Washington, D.C. area and and the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is why we moved to Texas. Uh, And then about 20 years ago, I started my own business uh, helping the industry really look at, use, understand technology. And, you know, 20 years ago, early 2000s, lots was happening. The internet was starting to take off websites and social platforms. And I was very interested in the technology piece, knew the industry. So I kind of became that person who could translate, here's the technology and here's how it can be used. And it was really Kind of as a result of that, about probably three, four, five years ago now, I began looking at how fast technology was developing and came up with this idea or thought that the biggest risk businesses face today is actually not taking enough risk. So coming out of the, you know, risk management and insurance industry, that's a, that's kind of counterintuitive. But because technology is developing so fast, firms don't have the amount of time they used to to kind of adapt to it, figure it out. How is this going to impact us? They have to move faster. Well, that thought led me to start looking at different companies, some successful, some not. And, you know, what is the difference? And so that's where I came across Amazon in kind of looking at why Amazon has been so successful. I came across the letters to shareholders that Jeff Bezos uh, started writing in 1997 and really got captivated by the information that he shares in those letters. And that's the result of all of that research and analysis is the the book, uh, The Bezos Letters. Awesome. 
So Amazon is the fastest company in history to reach a billion dollars in sales, right? So is there any one principle that stood out for you, Steve, that enabled them to grow that fast? In looking at the letters and trying to really understand them, we came up with the 14 principles and we grouped them into four different cycles. So test, build, accelerate, and scale. And the interesting thing about the principles is each one stands on its own, but they all interact with each other. You know, so is there one principle perhaps that, that you know, allowed them to grow? Well, I think there are several. You know, I think in the first phase, Amazon is really known as being an inventive company, right? I mean, look at their history and all of the different things that they have created, both for Amazon.com, we add Amazon Web Services, the computing platform, Prime, uh, free shipping, uh, two-day shipping. All of those were brand new ideas and thoughts. So I think, you know, at the core, and this really is, I think, think one of my messages is that Amazon's growth is a direct result of their willingness to experiment. And that means, and Bezos talks about experimentation a lot, that means you don't know if that experiment's going to work or not. So that's where principle number one actually comes in, which is encourage successful failure. Mm. Bezos says a couple times in his letters that Amazon is the best place in the world for an employee to fail. And that's just so counterintuitive because most businesses don't want failure, you know, actually punish failure for an employee doing something that doesn't work. Now, I also have to say Amazon has an intolerance for incompetence. So you're always supposed to bring your A game. But they understand that if you're going to invent on behalf of the customer, again, another favorite phrase of, of Bezos, if you're going to invent on behalf of the customer, you have got to have a lot of experiments, and most of those aren't going to work out. And that's a very strong cultural statement, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because, because of course, that will permeate everything in that organization. And I think that's, you know, for... Many businesses, again, you know, I think it's important to say your business is probably not going to be another Amazon. You know, there were some certainly some things that were happening at the time Bezos came up with this idea and started. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from what they've done. And regardless of what size you are currently, I think these principles really can help you think through, okay, how do we grow in our own business and our own particular area? Uh, and I think one of those is the willingness to experiment and a culture, as you said, of inventiveness. And I think that's one of the keys that certainly has made Amazon stand out. Yes. And one of the things that I found fascinating about reading the book was that Amazon don't allow people to use PowerPoints in their presentations, do they? That no. PowerPoints are banned, aren't they? They don't. Yeah, this is, again, you think culturally, you know, you think about meetings at most businesses and people complain about them, they're excruciating. But early on, Bezos actually came out with a, a all-company memo and said, no longer will any meeting have a PowerPoint or a keynote presentation, no slide-orientated presentations. 
what we will have, however, is memos. So it's come to be called the six-page narrative or the six-page memo. Why six? That was just the maximum number of pages this memo can be. So if I need a decision, either I have an idea for a new product, a new service, a new platform, I need funding, I need approval to move forward, I can call that meeting, but at the beginning of that meeting, I will hand out this written document, not send it out beforehand, because Bezos says executives are busy, they say they're going to look at it, and they don't. So we're going to spend the first 10, 15, maybe 30 minutes of this meeting reading the memo with all of the details that we need in order to have a much better discussion about the objective, about the product, about the service. And those memos have now become fairly structured. It actually starts with what Amazon calls the future press release. So you actually write the press release that will be sent out on the day the product is announced to the customer. What are the benefits, right? All of the, all of those kinds of things. And what happens is it forces people to think deeper about whatever it is they're pitching. And it forces everybody literally in that meeting to be on the same page. So I actually have done that for a couple of projects I've worked on. Recently created those six page memo. And what's fascinating is it's, it's awkward. I mean, literally to say I'm handing this out. I would like to take the first 20 minutes in silence and have you read through and make notes uh, on the paper of questions you have. But what happens is the discussion is so much richer and you're not spending and wasting time on on details because they're already written out for you. Yes. And the thing that I love about that is that they're really starting with, okay, so what's the value that you're bringing to the market? Whereas a, a PowerPoint could just be, well, here's the product, this is what it's all about, and then you get to the value at the end. Yes. But I love the idea of starting with a, with a press release because it's like, okay, so a press release is what is it that, about this product or service that is so exciting? And to put that up front, I, th- I like that. I like it. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, it's a living document. So as the project moves forward, assuming it gets, you know, approval, that document is updated. But now you've created a a built-in history of the process. And, you know, if the product doesn't work, and Amazon cancels products all the time, if it doesn't work the way they thought, they now have something to go back to and say, okay, what assumptions did we make? What did we think was going to be true that ended up not being true? And what can we learn from it? And so it's it's this whole idea of slowing down to speed up, right? Mm. You think, okay, that's a waste of time. We need to move faster. But actually, you are moving fast because you spend more time thinking through all of the issues, the problems. You know, one of the components of that six-page memo is uh, frequently asked questions. And so what are the customer questions going to be? And you actually think through what the answers are. And it forces you, again, to design the product service that's customer-focused and will benefit the customer. Yeah, I love it. Now, Amazon's had some critics as well, haven't they? Yes, they certainly have. 
So what would you say, for example, about some of the people that say, well, Amazon exploits its workers, they don't pay enough taxes, they do all sorts of things that are, are not friendly to the, to the world that they're serving? Well, I think, you know, one, they're big, and a big company should be scrutinized. And, and Bezos has said that himself in uh, several interviews, that, you know, we should have oversight. I think the fulfillment center workers typically is kind of where that piece of it comes in. And I've had the opportunity to tour uh, actually two different fulfillment centers here in the U.S. And it's hard work. I mean, I, there's no question about it. And here's where, you know, one of the principles that I pull out is, you know, obsess over customers. You know, Amazon is completely focused on the customer. And I would say, you know, is there too much obsession over the customer and not enough for the worker. Well, maybe, and I think we could you know, have a discussion about that, but at least here in the U.S., Amazon's minimum wage at $15 is actually higher than any state, local, or federal minimum wage jurisdiction right now. So they are already paying more than what's, quote, required uh, for them. So I think they are trying, you know, they're. Tr I think they're trying to balance those, right? We, we Fast delivery is a core value at Amazon, right? In fact, they have, they have three customer pillars that they work on. One is wide selection. I think they've done that pretty well. Yes. Two is low prices. I think they, you know, generally are known. They're not always the low pr lowest price. And three is fast delivery. In fact, Bezos says in one of his letters, we can't imagine a time when our customers would prefer less selection, higher prices, and slower delivery. <laughs> I like that. And, and I think, you know, again, the, the, the critics should be there, right, to help them balance some of those things. Um, and, and let me make one comment about the taxes. I have actually never understood that because to my knowledge, Amazon has never been criticized for tax evasion, for illegally not paying taxes. No. They take advantage of every tax, call it a loophole if you want, but why be mad at Amazon for that? We should be mad at the legislators who put those tax uh, laws into place that companies can take advantage of. So to me, that's misplaced. I don't know anybody business or personal, who pays more taxes than they owe. No, it's just against human nature. It is. I do everything. You know, here in the U.S., we're filing, you know, our taxes, and I did everything I could with my accountant to minimize the amount of taxes I had to pay. So it, it, that, that, I think, should be directed at the legislatures uh, in terms of they created these laws. They can change them. Great. So what would you say the main lessons are for startups or early stage entrepreneurs? Because as you pointed out at the beginning of this interview, my business is unlikely to ever be as big as Amazon and most of my listeners' businesses won't either. So what are those nuggets that, that you would say are particularly applicable to small businesses? Well, I, and again, I think that's where we'll go back to the cycle. So the cycles are test, build, accelerate and scale. And I think, you know, startups typically are testing a lot, right? They're, they're, they're looking at, is this product going to work? Is this marketing, you know, uh, activity going to work? And so testing can be built in. 
to kind of what they think about and what they do. But the second principle is bet on big ideas. And so you test small and then you find those nuggets and then you start betting on those big ideas. And let me give you an example from Amazon. I mentioned uh, Amazon Prime, right? Uh, free two-day shipping. When that started in the early 2000s, that was a crazy idea. Nobody was paying for shipping. Um, and Amazon tested that out before they went to Prime. They had, uh, uh, they started with, you know, buy $99 and you get free shipping. They lowered that a couple of times down to $25. And then Bezos said, you know what? Shipping is a friction point for our customers. What if we just remove that? So it was a crazy idea. And actually, his senior leadership at the time said, we can't do that. We can't afford that. And Bezos said, you know what? If it's better for the customer, it will be better for Amazon and our shareholders. And so they went all in on Prime. Um, and it, it obviously turned out what happened is, and I think Bezos had a, you know, kind of a gut feeling that this would happen. But today, Amazon Prime members typically spend two to three times as much on Amazon as a non-Prime member. Why? Because the friction's gone. I don't have to worry about cost of shipping and, you know, those kinds of things. So that was a big idea, and, and Amazon went and bet on that. So I think as a startup, you know, try and identify what are some big ideas that we should bet on. Um, you know, another interest, interesting one to me is uh, Amazon Web Services, AWS, the computing cloud computing platform. Again, they created that to solve their own internal problem, which was, you know, Every department was creating and redundancy uh, on computing platforms and IT infrastructure and all of that. And they decided, no, we need to have that for everybody. And then they decided, someone said, you know what, there are probably developers out there that, that would want this, not have to buy big servers, right, all those kinds of things. And again, AWS now has become one of their, their big bets. Wow, thank you for that. Steve, I wanted to ask you a question about Jeff Bezos himself. Mm -hmm. So do you think, having read the letters, obviously they go all the way back to, I think it's 1997. Correct. Have you seen him evolve personally and professionally throughout that time? Has he become a different person? Yeah, it's actually interesting because one of the things that I noticed in reading the letters as a single narrative, right, all the way through, is you see some of that change in his thinking. Concepts that he had in that first 1997 letter continue to be developed um, and, I would say, improved uh, as he goes on, you know, in those, those letters. Um, and Kind of what was interesting to me, too, what captured my attention was I think so many CEOs would have looked at everything he talked about in those letters as kind of proprietary or our secret sauce. And, you know, the phrase I use is Bezos, you know, gave everything away, it, it, hidden in plain sight, right? Anybody could have looked at these letters and, and gone through them. But he's been very generous, and I think that, and generous in terms of his uh, willingness to talk about what it is at Amazon that has allowed them to be uh, as successful as they are. 
Uh, I will say the latest letter, which is the 2019, um, was different. Um, it, it talked a lot about COVID-19 and their response to that and, and you know, their uh, green initiatives and some things like that. It just had a different tone to it. And I haven't quite figured out what that means, if anything. But every other letter, I am convinced he probably didn't write 100% of it. But it, it is his thoughts that are uh, published in each of those letters, certainly prior to uh, 2019. Hmm. That's interesting that you mentioned the letter in 2019. And would you say that the world is becoming more socially conscious and that there is this term, isn't there, which is called greenwashing. Do you think that Amazon is a company that has complete integrity, or do you think that that was an example of greenwashing, for example? Well, to answer that question, I'll go back to Jeff Bezos' high school valedictorian speech. He was in Miami, Florida. He was valedictorian of his high school class. And his speech, he talked about the need for uh, the earth to be converted into a national park and that manufacturing, right, all the things that pollute needed to be moved to space. And so I don't think most people understand that this idea of sustainability and, right, all the kind of the, dare I say, kind of the buzzwords today where everybody's talking about it, he started talking about that in high school. He, he believes the earth is the best place to go and, mm. and stay as the best place for humans. He doesn't believe we should, you know, Mars is going to be any better. So we need to take care of the earth. And he started Blue Origin in early 2000s as a way to create the infrastructure necessary to actually move much of that stuff into space. And I think that's another characteristic that I'll point out is that Bezos' long-term thinking is key to him. Now, it's a principle I have that I think business owners need to employ also. But he thinks multi-generational. In fact, in that 97 letter, he talks about building something here at Amazon that we can tell our grandchildren about. And this was, you know, he was mid, mid thirties. I'm not, I, I don't even think he had kids yet, but he's already thinking multi-generational. And, you know, so that's a long-winded answer to your question. I think it's at a core of who he is. That's absolutely fascinating. So I suppose it comes as no surprise, really, that he's, he's just an uber big picture guy. And this obviously extends to the Amazon and the growth of his business, but it also, Naturally, it would extend to his vision for the world and for everybody in it. Correct. In fact, he's described Amazon as, quote, winning the lottery. And his most important work is what he's doing at Blue Origin to create the infrastructure necessary to, to allow, literally, he said this, to allow a college kid in a dorm room to create a space company. Right now, that's not possible. But he can see in the future, if we create the infrastructure, that could be possible. Steve, have you ever met Jeff Bezos yourself? I have not yet. So it it is on my list of what I hope to be able to do someday. 
I think he's due to meet with you. <laughs> if I were him, I would want to meet somebody who's written a book about me. I think that's the least he can do. <laughs> I, I would, I would think so too. And I will, uh, I will drop whatever I need to to uh, to go meet him sometime. So I do hope to be able to do that. I do have some questions for him, though. I, I have kind of started a list of okay, what what do I ask him? I'd love to hear what those questions are. The first one is on the list is. You know, and I'm sure people are thinking, oh, you know, what's your secret and all of that kind of stuff. I was like, why did you, why did you write these letters the way you did? You know, at least here in the U.S., you know, kind of Warren Buffett is, is kind of considered the premier shareholder letter writer. He's done it for 40 years and people wait for that letter to come out. I think people will, will see Jeff Bezos that way. Did he just feel like he wanted to teach? Is this a legacy he wants to leave? So, you know, what was the motivation for putting so much good information in those letters that I think can help any business? Mm. And having studied him and having read all the letters, what do you suspect his answer might be? I think, it, you know, again, because he's such a long-term thinker, I do think it is uh, uh, more of a legacy. And I think he has an abundance mindset. It's not because he talks a lot about being customer focused, not competitor focused. There's plenty of room for all kinds of different businesses. And I think he he wants to help businesses thrive, you know, in, in this world. And uh, certainly for him, the Internet was the kind of the core piece of what allowed them to do that. And I think, you know, everything I see him doing it just leads me to that conclusion. That's absolutely fascinating because one of the things that I love to talk about is how the most successful businesses in the world are purpose-driven rather than profit-driven. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that because I think they, they think, well, why why don't they care about profits? It's not that they don't care about profits, but it's that their purpose is bigger than their profits. Yeah, and I, and I think part of that too, Jane, is that when you have purpose, profits come. Yes, if you're always focused on doing everything just for Prime, and I'll go back on Amazon on Prime. Prime has been a money loser for, for many years, but there are other benefits, right? So if it was just profits, then they probably wouldn't have made that decision. But if they believe so strongly that they need to invent on behalf of the customer, then that becomes the motivation, not just short term. And I think, again, that's where the, his long-term thinking comes in. Mm. And how would you say the Amazon culture has influenced the culture of high tech everywhere? Because clearly they are the leading company in that field. So do you think their culture and their values have been incorporated by some of the other high tech businesses around? Yeah. So uh, interesting study done, and I can't cite it right now, but uh, looking at people who had worked at Amazon for some period of time and have left and gone to be CEOs of other startup firms or other companies. And their, you know, I would say transplanting or taking with them what they learned at Amazon in terms of how Amazon works, their mindset, their culture, right, all the things there, and starting to spread that into other uh, certainly tech companies, probably mostly, but spreading that into other companies. So I, I do think that, you know, obviously Amazon's successful. Obviously people want to know why, what can we do? 
And I think that's part of what's happening is that that culture is starting to be transplanted elsewhere. So Elon Musk is famous for talking about the number of hours that he he's he works every week. He's a very famous, infamous, should we say, workaholic. And of course, Elon Musk is another one of these guys like like Jeff Bezos that a lot of entrepreneurs look up to. What do you think about the the work culture generally in terms of the hours that are expected of people and the competitive work ethic and whether that's healthy, whether it's unhealthy? Where do you think Amazon sit with that? Well, I'll talk about Bezos first. And, and I guess let me, let me say, you know, Amazon's a tough place to work. It's highly competitive. And when you bring A players together, I mean, that's sort of the natural outcome of working with other A players. And Amazon is very, actually has a whole process in place to make sure they're hiring only the best. For Bezos personally, he actually works at getting at least eight hours of sleep at night. In the morning, you know, again, this could change now, but he used to make breakfast for his kids before they went to school. He didn't take any meeting before 10 a.m. because that was his morning time. So I would say for him personally, he's the exact opposite of Elon Musk. Mm. And, and not, you know, if you're not work, if you're not hustling, if you're not working 100 hours a week. And, and I might argue, if you look at Elon Musk and over certainly the last few years, you know, he's had some pretty interesting events happen, I guess I would say. And I'm wondering how much of that is just sleep deprivation that I don't, <laughs> I don't personally believe the more hours you work, the better. I think there is a, a point where it's actually diminishing returns. And that actually your best thinking, your best creativity, your best inventions happen when you take care of yourself. You're well rested. You have, you know, time outdoors and you know, all of those kinds of things. So, Steve, is there going to be a follow up to the Bezos letters? Are, are you going to analyze other CEOs or any any plans? I would say I'm looking at various options. I haven't found any other, you know, kind of CEO shareholder letters that have, you know, captured my attention like uh, the Bezos letters did. One of the ideas, again, I'm bouncing around, nothing firm yet, but the actual original book that I started researching had a working title of The Risk Dilemma. Is your business taking too much, too many risks or not enough? And that's still kind of floating out there a little bit. The other one is, idea is off my uh, number one principle, encourage successful failure. There's just been a lot of question and conversation around that idea. And kind of the the working title right now for that concept is called um, the failure paradox. Right. Nobody, mm. nobody wants to fail, but we need to fail to move forward. And so how, do, how does that actually work? Uh, and, and in a, in a business, how do you incorporate that mindset into your culture? And, you know, what are the negative sides to it, et cetera? So those are a couple of ideas that I'm, I'm bouncing around because, um, actually it's been just about a year since we finished this manuscript for the Bezos letters. Those are both incredibly interesting topics, and I don't quite know which one to start with, but if we start with failure, 
Now, failure is a very interesting one because we none of us like failure, do we? No, we don't. And, but I, I think how I would phrase it, actually, and I say this in the, the Bezos letters, though, is I don't know that I'm afraid of failure because I sort of know. I mean, literally, I have, I have seven grandchildren now, and the, the youngest ones are you know learning to walk, right? I mean, lots of failure, lots of falls, lots of bumps. But that's part and parcel of learnings, you know, a new skill, a new, a new process. But I think for employees, they fear the consequences of failure, mm. meaning what impact is that going to have on my career? Am I going to get fired? Am I, you know, and, and, and that prevents some crazy ideas from being tested that actually might work. Some ideas are just crazy and they should be discarded, but some ideas are crazy and might actually work. But if you don't have a culture that supports that kind of experimentation, then you you possibly are missing out on the the great crazy ideas. Mm. And you talked earlier on about slowing down to speed up and how how actually taking the time to recognize those lessons is critical and you don't just bypass failure if you just say well that didn't work on we go to the next one then that in a way is not doing that justice yeah i think it's really important and again i think that's one of the benefits of of the six-page narrative the six-page memo and let me give you a great example of, of amazon i think probably their biggest failure in 2014 jeff bezos announced the fire phone so now think about 2014. We already had Android. We already had iOS. Came out in 2007. Uh, iPhone. You know who needed a, an Amazon phone? Well, turned out nobody. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> at, at one point tried to give it away for 99 cents, and they couldn't even sell it then. They wrote off uh, 178 million dollars in uh, inventory and development costs at the end of 2014. But failure, and it was. Bezos' pet project. I mean, he he was the one behind it, pushing it, and and failed. Four months after the announcement of that phone is when Bezos got his first demonstration of an Echo with Alexa, what we would come to know as Alexa, and that came out of the same group that worked on the phone. So all the voice processing, right, all that kind of stuff that they learned, they were able to translate that and improve it into what is arguably a very successful platform and product right now. But the benefit of the six-page memo is they can go back and say, okay, what assumptions did we make? They, they, they know what they thought was going to happen. What didn't we understand correctly? And, and it becomes a, a framework for learning the lessons and incorporating that into the organization. That's absolutely fascinating. So they analyze it. And as you said, it's a living, it's like a living, breathing document. It basically charts their successes and their failures. Correct. And the lessons learned. I love it. Yep, absolutely. Mm. So just to get on to the first idea that you mentioned for your next book, which is about risk. I absolutely love risk. I find it a fascinating subject and partly because my other business is in property. So obviously with, with property development, it's all about risk, all yes. finance, all investments, it's all about risk. So I think all of us who know about this field, we, we love risk because we know that understanding risk better than anybody else means that you're more likely to get it right rather than wrong. 
But it's not always easy, is it, when there are factors outside of your control? So how do you manage risk in something like property development, for example, when it's very, very tied to factors that are to do with the economy and things that you simply cannot control or influence as an individual? Well, I think yeah, a couple of things. One is I talk about the concept of return on risk. So like when you're developing a project, you have an ROI, right? What's my return on the investment I put into this? Is it going to be worth it? I think another aspect that to add to that would be what's my return on risk. I will go actually, we talked about Richard Branson earlier. I think I'll go back to him because you know he's kind of known as the the maverick, right? The crazy entrepreneur, try anything. What's yeah. really interesting to me is the story behind him starting uh, Virgin Airlines. Again, he was trying to get to his island. You know, there's a lot of story there, but I think the important part of that story is he found out that Boeing had a 747 that wasn't being used. And so he negotiated to lease that airplane for one year. And at the end of the first year, he could return that lease back to Boeing without any financial consequences. So in his mind, he was protecting the downside. So he was already thinking, you know what, if this doesn't work, I don't want to put at risk my other enterprises, and I want to protect that, here's how I can do that. So I think when you're looking first, I go back to the six-page memo, that would be an interesting exercise to think through, okay, what are all the problems? What are all the things that could go wrong? Are there ways I can protect against that? And then, you know, at some point, you make a gut call, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where Again, back to one of my principles, which is uh, measure what matters, question what's measured, and trust your gut. You measure everything you can. You question, am I measuring the right thing? But ultimately, some of those decisions come down to experience, intuition, and gut. Moving forward with Amazon Prime was a gut call, not a data call. And, mm -hmm. and that becomes really important to put in the mix. That's absolutely fascinating. and. Since this is this goes beyond the Bezos letters, this is something that you do day in day out, isn't it? That yes, it that is. is a very 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 wise perspective. Yes, Thank you for that, Steve. My pleasure. Steve, you offer an assessment tool, don't you, to help business owners work out where they are in terms of the risk and and their business. I, I do. You know, fourteen principles is a lot. There's no question. Uh, mm. And I think they're all important. And as I said, I think when we started, they stand on their own, but they interact with one another. And so the question really is, okay, what's your appetite for risk? And which of the principles might be best for you to start looking at? It's hard to do all 14 at one time. And so we created an assessment to, uh, based on just some quick answers to questions that will help guide you into the principles may be most appropriate for where you are right now and your risk tolerance there, just to give you a, a way to kind of start thinking about how to do that. And that assessment's available at the book website, which is thebezosletters.com. Okay. Jane, I might also add, I just realized kind of as we were talking, I have a pretty big presence on LinkedIn and LinkedIn has a new service that's in beta right now called LinkedIn Newsletters. 
and I've actually started a newsletter called Return on Risk, where each week I'm just going to explore some of these topics a little bit more in terms of how to think about risk and how to approach it in your own business. That sounds absolutely fascinating. So, Steve, how can people get hold of you if they want to contact you personally? What's the best route? So, email is uh, steve at thebezosletters.com. And as I said, I have a big presence on LinkedIn. You should be able to search Steve Anderson, you know, maybe insurance, maybe U.S. Connect with me there. Let me know that you, you know, heard the show or give me some context for connecting, but I'd love to connect with you there. And, and anybody can follow me on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, that sounds great. I want to thank you, Steve, for joining us today on the Smart Connector. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for all your insights and wisdom around Jeff Bezos and those amazing letters that he's produced. And thank you for writing such an inspiring book. And I would definitely encourage any of our listeners to go and read the book. I've read it myself and it is absolutely fascinating. So thank you very, very much, Steve, for joining us. My pleasure, Jane. It was a a great pleasure to be on the show with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand. I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.